0: We're into week four of the impeachment inquiry into President Trump. Here are some new developments to keep you up to date. Trump's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, was paid $500,000 last year by a company founded by Lev Parnas, who was arrested last week on campaign finance charges. Giuliani told The Washington Post late Monday that he was confident the money he received for work done on behalf of Parnas's business was legitimate and originated in the United States. That payment, though, means Giuliani's firm was earning $500,000 from Parnas just as Giuliani began working closely with him to dig up dirt on Democrats in Ukraine. The information they collected is what prompted Trump to press Ukrainian President Zelensky to investigate Joe Biden. In a television interview that aired Tuesday, Hunter Biden conceded that it might have been a mistake to serve on the board of a Ukrainian gas company while his father was vice president. But he insisted that he did not have an ethical lapse. He accused Giuliani and Trump of pressing a ridiculous conspiracy related to his tenure. Meanwhile, the House's impeachment inquiry is turning attention toward former National Security Advisor John Bolton. A former top aide gave testimony on Monday, describing Bolton as infuriated by a shadow operation conducted by the president's allies to dig up political dirt in Ukraine. Some lawmakers and aides are already talking privately about the need to call Bolton to testify. The House of Representatives returned to Washington Tuesday back in session and resuming the impeachment inquiry at a rapid pace. And two key means of information gathering are at the forefront of the House's efforts this week. Document deadlines and closed door hearings depositions out of the public eye are scheduled for every day this week, and deadlines are set for individuals and agencies to turn over key communications about Trump, Ukraine, and military aid. So how unusual is an impeachment inquiry full of closed-door hearings? What does the pace of this investigation suggest about the Democrats' strategy? And at the end of this week, packed with testimony, how much more might the public learn? This is Can He Do That?, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Alison Michaels. With the House back in session, I turned to one of the Post's Congress reporters, Mike DeBonis, to help me make sense of everything impeachment inquiry happening up on the Hill this week. First and foremost, I wanted to understand why the Democrats are choosing to hold so many of these hearings. Behind closed doors and out of the public eye.
1: There's no rule book that says exactly how a congressional investigation is supposed to proceed. There's a set of rules, but it's really up to the majority in terms of how they decide to conduct the investigation, whether they do the interviews behind closed doors, in the open, which witnesses do they call, who gets to do the questioning, what's the format— in the House, the majority rules, and they get to set the rules to a certain degree.
0: And that's for any investigation or impeachment investigation specifically?
1: That's for any investigation. Typically, the rule is in the House, if the majority wants to do it a certain way, the only thing stopping them is the political backlash or fallout that they would feel from doing it that way. And right now, Democrats feel that they have reason to conduct this investigation in a, in a certain way. They want this happening out of the intense spotlight of open hearings, where you tend to have more political posturing, more preening for the cameras on both sides. I, I think Sherman Schiff and the House Democratic leaders would say that that's that's a problem on both sides. But it also allows them to sort of get independent testimony from witnesses who participate in events in a way that they they can't after the fact coordinate their testimony. So. It's basically about making sure that witnesses who might have something to hide don't have the opportunity to sort of get their story straight.
0: But then as a result of that, the public only learns what is essentially leaked by people who are inside the room to journalists or to others. Does that harm the inquiry efforts in any way for the public to only know very specific things as chosen to be leaked?
1: Well, listen, I'm a reporter who wants to know everything about everything all the time. So I'm not going to ever say that leaks are bad. But it's true that the public is not getting a full picture of what's happening behind closed doors, and that is the crux of the Republican objections to the process so far, which is that the witnesses that they've had in so far, they're largely testifying to non-classified matters. There's no reason that this can't be open testimony in the Republican telling, and thus why it should be either opened to public view, or these uh, transcripts of these interviews should be released forthwith. And I think the Democratic response to that would be, we don't want witnesses who might have something to hide or have reason to shade the truth to be able to coordinate their stories with other people present for certain episodes. To be clear, that's the way that investigations have worked in the past. For instance, And probably the freshest example on a lot of people's minds on Capitol Hill is the House Benghazi probe, the select committee that operated for two years between 2015 and 2016, and basically did, you know, 95 percent of its investigative work much the same way that the impeachment investigation is doing, which was in closed-door, classified-setting interviews that the full content of which wasn't released until the full scope of the investigation was over. Of course, there was one big exception to that, which was Hillary Clinton came in and gave 11 hours of testimony.
0: Right. Inside these closed door depositions, there are are lawmakers from both parties, correct?
1: That's right. It's structured in such a way that there's equal time for the majority and the minority. Uh, the, The way we understand it's working is that The majority gets an hour block of testimony to do questioning. Most of that questioning is being done by committee staff, although we understand that members are asking questions at the same time. And then that's followed by an hour for the minority to use for questioning either by members or staff. And then they've been alternating. And some of these interviews have lasted 10, 11 hours. So there's no situation here where Democrats are getting testimony that isn't being heard by Republicans in this room, and there isn't the situation where Republicans are being denied the equal opportunity to question these witnesses that Democrats get. One thing that Republicans have asked for is the opportunity for President Trump's own counsel to participate in these and perhaps do some of the questioning. There is some precedent for that, particularly in 1998, President Clinton had counsel present during the House Judiciary Committee proceedings around his impeachment. But this isn't precisely the same precedent. We're not in front of the Judiciary Committee right now. I think that there's some expectation that if and when the Trump impeachment investigation moves to the Judiciary Committee, that there will be a similar sort of due process. But we're not at that stage yet. And Democrats are basically saying Republicans are participating in this process, same as we are. And the majority sets the rules, and these are the rules.
0: Let's talk about who's involved in some of these closed-door hearings and what we've learned thus far from the information that has trickled out. I want to go through the schedule of this week, and we can look at at each of these people. First, Fiona Hill testified in a closed-door hearing Monday. Who is Fiona Hill and why was her testimony important?
1: So Fiona Hill uh, is the former senior director at the National Security Council overseeing all matters involving Russia and the post-Soviet and the former Soviet states. A quiet Um, job. (laughs) A quiet job, especially in the Trump administration. She had a uh, reputation, still has a reputation of being extremely, I don't want to say hawkish, but... She has always taken a very skeptical view of Russia and of Vladimir Putin. She wrote a biography of Vladimir Putin and believes that, you know, Russia constitutes a very serious national security threat to the United States and the Western order. And she was a voice uh, inside the National Security Council for taking a tough line uh, and, and one that was very much in contradiction to the sort of things that President Trump was saying going back to his campaign and and through his administration.
0: So what did we learn from her testimony?
1: Well, what, what we learned from the testimony is that she was intensely frustrated that the president and his personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, seemed to be trying to engage in an end around of the diplomatic process with regard to Ukraine by seeking, apparently, to get the new Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, to agree to investigate these things that seem to have no direct bearing on the national interests of the United States, but seem to have much more uh, direct bearing on President Trump's personal political interests.
0: So then on Tuesday, George Kent, a top official at the State Department, also testified in a closed-door hearing at this point. What do we know about what he has told lawmakers?
1: We don't know what he exactly he has to say, but he George Kent is a top-level official in the State Department. He's also a former deputy chief of mission at the Kiev embassy. He served under the current charge d'affaires, Bill Taylor, who's currently our man in Kiev. He is very well-versed on Ukraine and Russia issues and would know— Exactly what was going on and what all of this means. And the question that he's going to be asked to speak to is uh, how much was known up the chain of command at the State Department? What did you know about Rudy Giuliani and his associates attempts to sort of circumvent the policymaking process? And he's going to be asked to to speak to particular episodes, perhaps particular meetings that took place uh, over the course of uh, this summer following Zelensky's election.
0: All right, that's just Monday and Tuesday. What can we expect the rest of the week as far as as who might be on the hill for these hearings?
1: Well, the one, the, the really the the star witness this week is actually going to be on Thursday. That'll be Gordon Sondland, the ambassador to the European Union who has emerged as really the, the central figure as the guy who is being the main intermediary between Rudy Giuliani, the president's personal attorney and the state department and the official policymaking apparatus of the United States government. We know this because of text messages that were released by the committee earlier this month after uh testimony from Kurt Volker, the former special envoy to Ukraine and we believe that Volcker testified that it was Sondland who played the, this crucial intermediary role and apparently had direct contact with the president on these matters and was basically using his muscle inside the State Department to make sure that the official actions of the United States government were reflecting the, the, the president's private political interests.
0: We talked a lot about Sondland on this show a week ago. I can't believe it was only a week ago, but when that was when the Trump administration blocked him from testifying. Now, as you say, it looks like he's going to testify on Thursday. Why is that notable? Would Sondland's testimony have the potential to clarify Trump's intentions in his call with the Ukrainian
1: president? Perhaps. I think that there's an expectation that Sondland, being the person who is dealing directly with the president throughout this process will be best equipped to sort of describe the conversations and the state of mind and what the president was thinking and saying to him about his intentions regarding Ukraine. Now, we don't know if he's going to answer those questions. The White House has asserted some version of executive privilege. We know from a letter released by Fiona Hill's lawyer that they basically told her due to executive privilege, she can't answer questions about personal conversations she had involving the president. Hill's lawyer basically shot back and said, that's not true. She can claim executive privilege if she doesn't want to answer a question, but she's willing to answer any question that Congress had to her about those issues. So,
0: Is that the approach Sondland would take as well? We don't
1: know that. Listen, Gordon Sondland is a presidential appointee. He, by most accounts, was very loyal to Trump in advancing his interests. He's a donor to the Trump campaign. We published a very long profile of Sondland that said that he's aspired to be uh, in these diplomatic circles for some time. And uh, he's also aspired to be in the president's good graces. And it it really remains unclear to what degree uh, that remains the case.
0: And who else will be testifying this week?
1: So, yeah, we have... Several lower-level officials in the State Department and Defense Department, we have less of a clear idea of what their points of view are going to be on these things, but these are people who would have been engaged in the process uh, in conversations inside the government regarding Ukrainian policy over these past few months. I think this is very much about the committees wanting to make sure that everyone in the chain of command, from the president to Secretary Pompeo, on down to the ambassadors and the people in the embassies and uh, on the ground in Europe and Ukraine um, are on the record uh, describing exactly what they knew, when they knew it, and what they were hearing about the president's interest in these issues.
0: Alongside these depositions, there's additional information gathering happening. There's several deadlines by which a handful of people have to turn over certain materials and documents to Congress. I'm just going to read through a list of the documents due this week, and then you can tell me which of these documents might be most critical to the House investigation. So here's this list. Due this week, documents from Giuliani about his work in Ukraine, Pence communications related to Trump in Ukraine, Pentagon documents related to military aid for Ukraine. The acting director of the Office of Management and Budget, or the OMB, has communications related to military aid Two men who work with Giuliani in Ukraine have to turn over documents about that work. White House documents from the acting chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, and Energy Secretary Rick Perry has to turn over documents relating to his dealings with Ukraine's president. That's a lot. And that is just the deadlines from this week. So which of these matters most to the investigation and why?
1: The one area where we don't have great visibility right now is on this decision to withhold military aid from Ukraine over the summer. At some point in July, the order is given, do not deliver this $200 million plus aid package. Hold it back. And we don't know exactly how that order was given, who gave it, where did it originate. And this is the sort of thing where there would have to be a paper trail inside the Office of Management and Budget, perhaps within the White House itself.
0: But of course, we should note that many of this week's document deadlines will pass without Congress actually getting the documents they want.
1: That's right. I mean, the White House has made clear they are not going to cooperate in delivering any of these documents. And we should note that the witnesses who have showed up to testify have done so over the objections of the White House and uh, for the State Department employees, the State Department itself. Basically, what the Congress has done is to issue subpoenas that would override those objections, and some of these witnesses we call friendly witnesses to the investigation have decided to obey the subpoenas.
0: Given all of this, by the end of the week, the House will likely have a pretty robust amount of testimony and information to inform their investigation.
1: Yeah. There were a lot of concerns three weeks ago when this was launched about to what degree Democrats would be able to break the stone wall that the White House had erected against this investigation. They were extremely nervous based on the fact that so many of their oversight activities over the summer earlier this year have been challenged. But I think the fact now that you've seen witnesses come in voluntarily to defy the White House objections and to tell what they know has given Democrats a lot of momentum and a lot of a sense that they're getting at least, a, you know, one side of the story. They've still got a lot of details to fill in. But – they're at least making progress. And the question is, is this progress going to continue or is it eventually going to hit a brick wall where they will have to make a decision? Do we send this to the Judiciary Committee for articles of impeachment with what we have or do we try to go to the courts and compel the White House to cough up documents that they've yet to cough up? And that's something that's going to play out probably over the next week or two.
0: See, the next week or two, that seems very fast to me. This entire process has seemed really fast-paced. Is that standard operating procedure for a House investigation? Do do they often move this quickly?
1: It depends. This is clearly moving quickly. Is it moving more quickly than other impeachment investigations Compare it to the Nixon and Clinton impeachments? The Nixon impeachment actually lasted, you know, the better part of a year and a half. It actually started in the Senate with the... uh, Senate Watergate Committee established a special committee that worked for the better part of a year and secured public testimony from dozens of witnesses including very high level White House officials only then was it handed over in late 1973 to the House Judiciary Committee that actually has the power to pursue impeachment the judiciary committee worked quietly for months and didn't actually get into actual impeachment proceedings until beginning of the summer. And it was only in late July of 1974 that the Judiciary Committee passes articles of impeachment. And that's what really puts the pressure on Nixon and leads to his eventual resignation. With Bill Clinton, the congressional process was actually fairly brief. It lasted for a couple months uh, in the fall of 1998. But keep in mind what preceded it, which was the uh, independent counsel investigation led by Kenneth Starr, which continued for years and years, and was began to investigate the Whitewater land deal, and then eventually came to encompass the Monica Lewinsky episode and other things. So, by the standards of the the Clinton investigation, the congressional piece of this is probably in the same sort of realm of timing. But what you didn't have was this this lengthy, closed door, independent counsel probe preceding it.
0: So, does the speed reflect a greater strategy by the Democrats?
1: Well, I think it, it reflects a couple things. I think it reflects, number one, the sense that they believe that the president himself has admitted to committing a high crime and misdemeanor by releasing this transcript of this phone call with President Zelensky in which he, you know, do me a favor, though. Let's talk about the DNC server. Let's talk about Hunter Biden. And there's a sense that what more do we need? Their position is if if we believe that This president is a threat to the Constitution, and we believe that we have overt evidence that he's committed high crimes and misdemeanors. Why would we wait? Why would we let this president serve in office an extra day that he needed to? But there's also a political calculation here, and there's just a lot of uh, Democrats who believe that this shouldn't drag on uh, into next year when there's a presidential election underway. They don't believe this should distract from the ability of the Democratic presidential candidates to make their own case to the American public. So there's sort of a a principled argument and a political argument, and they're both right now counseling for fairly quick action to have this wrapped up by the end of the year.
0: Amidst all this information gathering, do you have a sense of any of how many of any rabbit holes beyond the Ukraine interaction between Trump and and his and the Ukrainian president the Dems might be pursuing? Has your reporting given any insight into other paths they might pursue or, or will this remain narrow?
1: Right now, it seems it's going to remain narrow. I think that there's a lot of interest in he's mentioned China and Hunter Biden's dealings in China. He said publicly the Chinese government should investigate Hunter Biden. And I think there's some interest in finding out if the president directly or indirectly raised this issue with the Chinese government in a similar way that he did with the Ukrainian president. That question has not been answered at this point. There's other pieces of this. Rudy Giuliani's role in this has opened up a bunch of potential avenues of inquiry here. The work that he's done on behalf of these Ukrainian businessmen, To what degree was he paid or compensated from foreign entities? There's a lot of questions there, and it remains to be seen to what degree Democrats are going to try and get answers to them.
0: All right, Mike, last question to you. What can we expect on the Hill next week?
1: It's hard to look more than a day at a time into the future, but I think that next week the House will have gotten a critical mass of testimony from key officials in the administration They're going to start to realize that, you know, the low-hanging fruit has been picked. There's going to be other officials they want to talk to who aren't going to perhaps be as eager as some of these other officials have been. And they're going to want some of these documents that they haven't been able to get. And they're going to be having – starting a hard conversation about what the next steps are going to be. Do we go to the courts or do we just plow forward with the impeachment process, move it to the Judiciary Committee – and start putting pressure on the president that way. And I, I think that that's a conversation that's really going to fire up in earnest next week.
0: All right, Mike, we'll look out for more reporting from you. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? For those of you who have sent us impeachment questions, thank you. For those who haven't, send them my way at allison.michaels at washpost.com. Thanks so much for listening. Can you Do That is a team advert here at The Post. It's produced by the affable Carol Alderman, with the design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon.